please be seated and turn with me to Haggai, the minor prophet Haggai, chapter 1. If you're, it's on your large print sheets. It's on your large print sheets. But if you're looking in Bible, you'll find this on page 1277. 1277. 1277 in your Pew Bible. Haggai, chapter 1. Be reading this in its entirety. Hear now the word of the Lord. In the second year of King Darius, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, saying, Thus speaks the Lord of hosts, saying, This people says, The time is not come, the time that the Lord's house should be built. Then the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet, saying, Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses and this temple to lie in, lie in ruins? Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, Consider your ways. You have sown much and bring in little. You eat, but do not have enough. You drink, but you are not filled with drink. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages, earns wages to put into a bag with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the mountains and bring wood and build the temple that I may take pleasure in it and be glorified, says the Lord. You look for much, but indeed it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, says the Lord of hosts, because of my house that is in ruins, while every one of you runs to his own house. Therefore the heavens above you withhold the dew, and the earth withholds its fruit. I called for a drought on the land and the mountains, on the grain and the new wine and the oil, on whatever the ground brings forth, on men and livestock, and on all the labor of your hands. Then Zerubbabel the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua the son of Jehozadak the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet as the Lord their God had sent him. And the people feared the presence of the Lord. Then Haggai, the Lord's messenger, spoke the Lord's message to the people saying, I am with you, says the Lord. So the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, 
and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God, on the 24th day of the sixth month, in the second year of King Darius. Thus far, the reading of God's holy and inspired word. My friends, today we're going to be looking at Haggai chapter 1 with this theme, the Lord corrects his people's priorities with regard to material things. The Lord corrects his people's priorities with regard to material things. Now let's consider then the situation. The temple and the city of Jerusalem still lay in ruins, having been destroyed because of the wickedness of God's people years before. And of course, we we saw that. Remember, we've been looking recently in the book of Ezra and how the people were brought back into the land and they were able to offer sacrifices. They were able to start work on the temple, but then what happened, as we saw last week in chapter 4 of Ezra, opposition arose and whether through official decree, although we're not told that explicitly, or whether just by means of the opposition and the, the, the harassment of the people around them and maybe running out of the zeal for the Lord and his glory, the people left off from building the temple. But what did they do during that time then? over those however number of years, they started to build houses for themselves. Some of them fancy mansions. These were not huts, at least a number of them weren't, but they they were pretty good houses, shall we say. But then, at the same time, as Haggai talks about here, There were agricultural setbacks. There were lifestyle setbacks. And there were economic setbacks that had afflicted the remnant. And it's in that context, then, that Haggai, the prophet, is bringing this message. Now, again, remember, the people of Judah were carried off into captivity in 586 B.C. But then the ruler, about 50 years after that, the ruler Cyrus allowed for whomever wished to return to do so to rebuild the temple. A relatively small remnant did return in 536 B.C. But then, as we already mentioned, because of the opposition by the Samaritans and others, they were persuaded not to continue building. Now, as we look at uh, Haggai, and we're going to be looking at this prophet then in three, three messages, three sermons over the next several weeks, we want to talk just a little bit about Haggai uh, in terms of the prophet. Now, not much is known about him, Uh, Some speculate that he was an old man who had been taken taken captive 
and who remembered the old temple and its glory. That's speculation. We're not sure about that. His name, however, interestingly, means evil. He was the first prophet as such after the return from Babylon. We have very clear evidence as to when this prophecy was, was done. Notice what it says here in verse 1, in the second year of King Darius, uh, Darius uh, was a man who ruled from 521 to 486 B.C. From 521 <laughs> to 486 B.C. He was basically, as rulers go, he was basically a fair ruler. So this is in the second year of his reign and the first day of the sixth month. And so we can date it pretty well in terms of it being August 29th 520 B.C. Again, an emphasis on history, on dates. I know my students appreciate the fact I didn't do too much with dates in history, though I did want them to know what July 4th was, <coughs> and D-Day too, and, and Pearl Harbor Day, and so forth. But dates are important, and one of the reasons why they're important is they are markers and they show us that this is not some pie in the sky. Our, our religion, our faith, is not some pie in the sky thing. has no basis in reality. No, my friends, it is rooted in history. And here, once again, we see that. And by the way, that was on a festival day, the new moon, the first of the month. A time, it was also not only a time for the special sacrifice for the new moon, but also then, of course, a time of religious meeting at the sanctuary. And it was a time, therefore, when the people would be doubly conscious that the temple was in ruins and they had their priorities in the wrong place. Now, there are three points today, then, as we look at Haggai 1, complaint, punishment, and resolution, CPR. Complaint, punishment, and resolution. So, number one, complaint. And notice the source of this complaint. It is the word of the Lord. Verse 1, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord. Verse 2, thus speaks the Lord of hosts. Verse 3, then the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet, saying. So it is the Lord. It is Yahweh, or Jehovah, the one who is the great I Am, the one who not only is, by, by means of that saying, he's the, the God of, of all existence, but he's also the God of the covenant. It is that God who comes. But he's also, notice what it says here, it doesn't just say the word of the Lord, but notice it is the Lord of hosts, verses 2 and 5. Now this is not so much a reference to Israel's armies. That's what a host means in this case. It doesn't mean someone who's like uh, uh, a male hostess. Okay, in this case, a host or the host, this is a reference to armies. But it's not so much a reference to Israel's armies, it's a reference to the angels. 
You remember that what that over the ark, what did you have? You had the two cherubim with their wings extended over the mercy seat. God's angels fought for his people. And so this then is a a special reference often to the temple and to Jerusalem. As a matter of fact, I'm sure you remember Isaiah chapter 6. I remember, I'm sure you remember Isaiah chapter 6. In the year that King Isaiah died, I saw the Lord sitting on the throne, on a throne high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above it stood seraphim, the burning angels. Each one had six wings. With two, he covered his face. With two, he covered his feet. With two, he flew. And one cried to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the post of the door was shaken by the voice of him who cried out. And the house was filled with smoke. So I said, woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people. Eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a live coal, which he had taken with the tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth with it and said, behold, this has touched your lips. Your iniquity is taken away and your sin purged. So when it's referring here to the Lord of hosts, think angels. Angels. These amazing creatures that, are, that surround the throne and particularly that are affiliated with the presence of God as in the temple. That's who is bringing this message. And therefore already there is a call to the people to realize the spiritual nature of the struggle. That, it, that the struggle, the, the battle that they were engaged in, the battle in some sense in their own hearts was a spiritual struggle as seen by this reference to the Lord of hosts. But notice also that God uses human instrumentality, namely Haggai. So this word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet. <clears throat> now, Haggai's language here has been taken to task by modern-day experts for the roughness, if you will, of his prophecy. He was, he was, in other words, there were some people that can be very smooth in their expression. There are others that are kind of rough, kind of uh, 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 rough on the edges, if you will. One of the things that we notice here, then, is that, first of all, God doesn't care about that, obviously. He wants to get his message across. And furthermore, the use of human instrumentality does not take away from the power of God's inspired message nor the fact that it is infallible. God uses this human messenger to bring his word to us. Haggai was very aware of his role. Uh, you'll notice uh, in verse 13 that Haggai, the Lord's messenger, 
spoke the Lord's message to the people. Apparently the only prophet specifically called the Lord's messenger. Haggai comes confidently and with boldness. So the source then of this complaint is the word of the Lord of hosts. And who are the targets? Well, the targets, first of all, are the leaders. The targets are the leaders, the representatives of the people who have a tremendous responsibility. For leaders can set either a good example or a bad example. They can lead in either direction. And so the leaders are called to task. First of all, the governor, Zerubbabel. The word there shows it's a Babylonian name. It means seed or shoot from Babylon. Seed or shoot from, Bab- from Babylon. In fact, he was a governor. It was uh, a reference like to, the, to being a satrap. He was also the grandson of Jehoiachin, who was uh, the king of Judah, who was taken captive in 597 B.C., Zerubbabel then was the heir apparent. God graciously preserved the line. And then we have Joshua, the son of Jehozadak. His grandfather, Sariah, had been executed when Jerusalem was captured. But this Joshua then was the high priest in charge of, we would say, church affairs. Now, I want to pause here just for a second and talk about church-state relations. Church-state relations. Because we see here something of the way that church and state are to be, are to coordinate with each other. They are coordinate and coordinate spheres of authority. A lot of people say, well, church versus state That's not the way the Bible looks at it. The Bible says that both church and state are under the the lordship of Jesus Christ. And both have an interest in religious matters. And that's what you find here. So let's be clear that we don't follow, we we don't follow the modern understanding of church-state relations. We reject the pagan and pluralistic understanding of the relationship between church and state. We affirm instead that both church and state are responsible to a higher authority, the Lord of hosts, and specifically the Lord Jesus Christ, the mediatorial king. But there's also a typical There's also a typical significance or symbolic significance. For Jesus Christ is the one in whom king and priest come together. Jesus Christ is the one who is the king and also the priest in his person and in his work. You notice there Joshua, the word Joshua, Basically, it's another way of saying this is Yeshua, or we could say Jesus. It's pointing to Jesus. Yeshua, Yahweh, is salvation. 
And so we find here then that the Lord Jesus Christ is being pointed to, including in his work as king and priest, and for that matter, by extension, prophet as well. So the leaders are targets here, first of all. But secondly, the people themselves are also targets. They too were to blame. Notice that the Lord here calls them this people. Kind of interesting, isn't it? Calls them this people. Doesn't call them my people. Calls them this people. But they also are to blame in terms of their not following the Lord. So what was the issue then? The issue was that of disobedience. The issue was that of disobedience. And that disobedience is seen, first of all, in terms of the denial of God's word to build. The denial of God's word to build. What is the excuse? Well, it's not the right time, basically. This this people, verse 2, this people says, the time has not come, the time that the Lord's house should be built. It's not the right time. It's not time for us to do that. Well, why wasn't it the right time? Well, was it because maybe the government didn't help them? But you know, with Darius uh, coming to power in 521 B.C., when he came to power, someone who was his predecessor, a tyrant, was replaced. So Darius now, this fair-minded fellow, is now sitting on the throne. So why isn't it time? Moreover, God could overrule that. Indeed, he did. As we will come back to Ezra in several weeks' time, Lord willing, We'll see in Ezra 5 and 6 that the Lord was, over, was able to overrule the opposition against the Or maybe they were thinking Cyrus's original grant of, of uh, supplies was exhausted. But my friends, God is the one who owns all things. Maybe it wasn't time because these Samaritans were vexing them and discouraging them. But God never said it would be easy. And furthermore, this opposition did not prevent the Jews, these Jews, from building fancy houses. Or maybe it wasn't time because of the lack of glory, the lack of splendor in in comparison to Solomon's temple. But my friends, God still wanted them to build. And so we see then Uh, The issue, first of all, is that of disobedience, of not obeying God, of not believing God when he said it's time to build. But secondly, in this regard, and this is really, I think, where where, um, Haggai is is, uh, focused, it has to do with misplaced priorities. They were living, you see, look at verse 4, they were living in paneled houses. Now, these would have been houses then with costly woodwork. Kind of like the temple. You remember Psalm 74 describing the destruction of the temple and, you know, the the glory of that and it seemed as if an axe had cut down forest trees. That was the way that God's house was to look. 
but the people here were concerned only about their own rich, luxurious accommodations. The Lord's house then was desolate while people ran to their own houses. They <laughs> ran to their own houses. Verse 9, because of my house that is in ruins, while well, every one of you runs to his own house. Quite simply then, <coughs> quite simply, these people were content with the status quo with regard to religious matters. They still pay their dues in some ways to God, but they did not put God first. They may have gone through the rituals, but they did not put God first. And so we see then this complaint against them in terms of their disobedience, but particularly the fact that they didn't put God first, misplaced priorities. Now secondly, we see the punishment. And the punishment then, look at uh, verse 6. <clears throat> the punishment, first of all, has to do with unrealized dreams. Unrealized dreams. Consider your ways, verse 5. You have sown much and bring in little. You've harvested but little. The sky had withheld its dew, withheld its produce. In terms of food and drink, you eat, but do not have enough. There's not enough to go around. But more than that, what they have is not satisfying or pleasurable. What about drink as well? You drink, but you are not filled with drink. In terms of clothing, they, you clothe yourselves, they put on clothing, but no one is warm enough. And then, in terms of wages and money, this very striking phrase here, he who earns wages, earns wages to put into a bag with holes. Now, children afterwards, perhaps when you get home this evening, I want you to take a, um, a paper bag and I want you to put a hole in the bottom of it. And I want you to put some coins in there and shake it up. How many coins do you think are going to be left after a few shakes? How many coins are going to be left in that bag? Not very many. See, that's the picture that you have here. So it's, it's futile. It's stupid. It's nonsense to do this. It's foolish to do this. You exercise all of this power, all of this energy. You put all of your resources into this. And yet at the end of the day, it's not going to satisfy. At the end of the day, God is the one who's going to exact a penalty with regard to this. They have shelter. Perhaps this is God's way of reminding them of the desolation of his house. 
But God is the one, verse 11, God is the one who is calling for a drought on everything. On the land, on the mountains, on the corn, the grain, the vegetables, the new wine, the fruits, on the oil. And whatever the ground brings forth, not only that, on men or man and livestock, and on all the labor of your hands. And so there is punishment that is coming. Now in practical terms then we see that it is the Lord himself who carries out the punishment. Verse 9, you looked for much, but indeed it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Verse 11, for I called for a drought on the land and the mountains, on the grain, and the new wine, and the oil, and so forth. Were they having difficulties because they were unlucky? No, not at all. Not at all. God is the one who still causes droughts and famines so that folks will know that he is in charge. And this, by the way, is a just punishment. It is judgment for idolatry. It is judgment for idolatry. And by the way, look at verse 10 just a moment. It's very interesting. You see where it says there, therefore the heavens above you withhold the dew? There's perhaps a better way of translating this instead of therefore, because of you. Because of of you. In other words, there's a connection between what they were doing and the judgment that God was bringing. Because of you, because of how you've been acting, therefore the heavens will withhold the dew and the earth will withhold its fruit. But at the same time, my friends, the Lord is the one who provides for his faithful ones. What did Jesus say? We read it today from Matthew chapter 6, the last um, third or so of uh, the sixth chapter of Matthew and towards the end of it. Jesus says, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things shall be added to you. Remember in Psalm 37, where David says, I have been young, now many years have o'er my life been spread. I've never seen the righteous left, his children begging bread. So God is capable of taking care of us. But he's also capable of punishing those who misplace their priorities, and that's what we see here such as those who do not seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness will be judged by God so that even, not not only spirit, even their material possessions will not satisfy. So we have the complaint and we have the punishment. Now thirdly, we have the resolution. The resolution. And the resolution, of course, is that of repentance. Not some sort of vague obedience, 
but according to Haggai's words. Now, did you notice there's something very interesting here? The beginning of the chapter, it talks about the first day of the sixth month. At the very end, it talks about the 24th day of the sixth month. Now, that interval of 23 days, just over three weeks, does not imply a lack of immediate obedience. There was time that was required for planning, for removing rubble, for getting material, and so forth. I think the 23 days is not indicating they were delaying things. I think actually it is showing that they got on it pretty quickly and started to rebuild according to the prophet's call to repentance. Notice that this is to be done in terms of the fear of the Lord. Verse 12, so they obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet as the Lord their God had sent him and the people feared the presence of the Lord. And here it was not so much a fear of trembling in their boots, but rather the fear of awe, of reverence, and of knowing that it was the Lord of hosts with whom they were dealing, and they now wanted to be in a right relationship with him. We see the the work that they undertook. Verse 8, go up to the mountains, bring wood, build the house. And so we have then the resolution, which is that of repentance, which they did. But notice the resource. It was the Lord himself. Because, verse 7, God is the one who called them to repentance. Consider your ways. Consider your ways. Set your heart, the seat of the affection, set your heart on your ways. Set your heart on, understand what you're doing here in terms of your actions and the consequences of those actions. Consider your ways. It is God who reaches out in issuing the call to repentance because his intention toward us is not towards judgment but it is towards grace. And that's what we find here. And so we have then God's blessing upon the people. God, you see, will be pleased with the work of their hands, even as God is pleased with the work of our hands when we repent. He's pleased with the work of their hands because of the work of his grace he he sees worked out in their hearts but also because he desires, God desires his own glory. And so he blesses these efforts. Notice verse 13 in terms of God's presence. Haggai, the Lord's messenger, spoke the Lord's message to the people saying, I am with you, says the Lord. Isn't this just like what Jesus said? in the Great Commission. Lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the age. Is this not what we see in the Psalms? Perhaps most um, importantly, or most uh, poignantly perhaps, in Psalm 23, 
The Lord is my shepherd. And in verse 4, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. In Psalm 91, in Psalm uh, 91 and verse 5, verse 4, excuse me, he shall cover you with his feathers, and under his wings you shall take refuge. His truth shall be your shield and buckler, or shield. And so, my friends, God here, through the prophet Haggai, gives them comfort. He gives them comfort by promising his presence with them. And then notice verse 14. God is the one who worked in their lives. God, you see, it says the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, God of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. So that's a reference to the human spirit, the spirit of, We are spiritual beings as well as having a body. But who is the one who does that? It's the Holy Spirit who stirs up the spirit within us, our our own spirits, so that we have the ability to understand his will and to repent of our sins and to do what he expects. So that... Just like it says here, notice verse 14, they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts. It doesn't say the God. It says their God. And in the same way, when the Spirit works within your heart and mine, it's so that he can affirm and confirm to our souls that we belong to him and he to us. So, by way of application, I have three points today. First of all, beware, beware, be warned, beware, misplaced priorities. Beware, misplaced priorities. Now, first of all, in terms of the church, beware of misplaced priorities. Now, Here in Haggai, they were talking about building a a physical building. And there is an importance to that. We had the uh, prayer request about the renovations here on the building. Well, buildings are not, in the final analysis, essential. But on the other hand, they can be important. And, of course, there is an importance then to making sure that we give to the Lord's work, that we tithe our income to the Lord's work, so that we do have a place in which to do ministry. But on the other hand, the more fundamental issue is in terms of spiritual edification. The church is not a physical building, even though it uses a physical facility. The spiritual reality is much more important than a building. And therefore, what we are called upon here is not simply in terms of tithing and 
and giving financially to the church, we certainly are, but rather we're called upon to build her up spiritually, knowing that Satan's devices cannot stop it. And yet we can put roadblocks in the way, can we not? And those who are sluggish in their sins, who are loaded down with their rebelliousness, with their wickedness, with their not being fully committed to the Lord and to his church, essentially are saying, the time is not right. But my friends, today is the day of salvation. Today is the day. Right now, it is right to make sure your priorities are straight. But not only the church, but also spiritual matters in general. Spiritual matters in general. You see, the, the temple is a picture. The temple that we're talking about here is a picture of God's presence. It is an outward visible sign. And there is a close link between the temple and God's covenant. And therefore, we are called upon, in light of that, in light of following the Lord, being committed to him, we are called upon not to let material things crowd out the spiritual. Not to be materialist. Or we could put it this way, don't let material things crowd out God. Where's your priority? Are you like the people in their rebelliousness? Or is your commitment to God? And we see this, this call not to misplace priorities, even with regard to salvation itself. You see, rebuilding the temple at this point in redemptive history, rebuilding the temple right now in history was the condition on which the dawning of the Messianic age depended. You see this later in Haggai, Haggai chapter 2, verses 6 and following. The Lord of hosts, once more, it is a little while, I will shake heaven and earth, the sea and dry land, I will shake all nations, they shall come to the desire of all nations, and I will fill this temple with glory, says the Lord of hosts. And Malachi chapter 3, Malachi chapter 3, and verse 1, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. Even the messenger of the covenant, in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. And so we find then that as part of God's plan throughout history, it was important for this temple to be rebuilt. And to neglect rebuilding the temple was essentially to reject God's promises in Christ. Of course, this temple found its, found its final fulfillment in Christ himself, who himself is the very temple, the very dwelling place of God. 
Is that not what Jesus said in John chapter 2 with regard to himself? In John chapter 2, he says, verse 19, Jesus answered and said to them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. In verse 21, but he was speaking of the temple of his body. Now let me be very clear here in terms of these misplaced priorities, particularly with regard to salvation. Some of you may be rejecting salvation because of a commitment to material things. Some of you may be religious, at least to an extent, but not committed to Christ. That's the message that Haggai, in essence, was giving to the people back then, and that's the message for us today. Don't have misplaced priorities. Examine yourself. As you come to the Lord's table next week, examine yourself to see if you're committed more to material things than to the spiritual realities, even to Christ himself. That's the first point of application. Second point is this. What we have here then is a picture of salvation. A picture of salvation, at least a couple of ways. First of all, salvation requires the work of God. That's why we said in verse 7, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. God is sovereignly calling his people to repentance. It requires that work. It requires the spirit of God, verse 14, to stir up our spirits. Salvation requires the work of God. We see that portrayed here, my friends. But we also see that there is no true happiness without God. Because what happens? God blows it away. You looked for much, verse 9, but indeed it came to little when you brought it home. I blew it away. God will make you miserable without himself. And thirdly, if you are a materialist, you need salvation. If you are a materialist, you need salvation. You need the Christ, the Messiah, who himself is the word of God, God himself. You need the one who always had proper priorities, who never gave himself over to material possessions. Indeed, you need the one who himself became desolate and forsaken. You need the one who can satisfy that God-sized vacuum in your life so that you don't end up putting coins into bags with holes. Amen. We please stand for prayer. And Father, we pray that thy Holy Spirit would work in the hearts of each one here. Lord, thou art the one who searches the hearts. Thou dost know what each one of us is thinking and desiring. 
And so we pray, O God, that thy Holy Spirit would move powerfully in our midst and bring about conviction as is appropriate and comfort as well. And grant us the grace, O Lord, that we not give ourselves over to material things, that we not have misplaced priorities, and that we not show the folly of putting coins in the bags with holes. Grant us that grace, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen.